Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, and we're going to return to chapter 2, which we started last week, and I want to just reread the, the portion that we are looking at. It's uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but the glory and honor and peace, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for... Uh, this opportunity to, to study your word again this morning. And I pray as we discuss some things that at the end of the day are mysterious and not as specific and precise as we would like them to be in scripture, Lord, that we would be uh, right in the way we think about these things. Lord, I pray that uh, I would not say anything untrue or unclear, but Lord, faithfully maintain the tension that we find in Scripture so often when it comes to these subjects of mystery, your judgment being one of those, and so we ask that you would guide and direct us by your Spirit today, that you would help us to learn the things you want us to learn so we can be the people you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, one of the pervasive themes in the Word of God is the judgment of God. The Bible repeatedly refers to God's judgment and includes many explicit examples of God's judgment along with many sobering warnings about God's judgment. Obviously, the judgment of God is not a popular topic in our day and age, because it often strikes fear into people's hearts, or at least it creates some level of anxiety. 
And so even though we all know that we will stand before God someday and have to give an account of our lives, I think we try to think about it and talk about it as little as possible. But if you read and study the Bible like we as Christians do, both individually and corporately, we're faced with this subject a lot. And we have to come to grips with, with what God says about it in his word. And I think one of the most important and helpful things to understand about the judgment of God is that it can be divided into two categories, two basic categories. Specifically, God's judgment of believers and God's judgment of unbelievers. And we need to be careful here that we uh, don't confuse what's known as the Bema Seat Judgment and the Great White Throne Judgment. See, both believers and unbelievers will face God's judgment, but they'll be judged separately at two totally different times and in two completely different ways. And as I was preparing to re-enter this passage and I, find myself, I found myself running down a rabbit trail that um, in, in many ways I've been down a little ways from time to time throughout my life and study of God's word, but had never really pursued a, a, a real clear understanding of the difference between the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers. And particularly what the Bible teaches about the Bema Seat and the Great White Throne. And it's always been kind of a conundrum to me. And I've always kind of just uh, kept it on the surface in my mind. And anything I've ever shared has kind of just been more uh, superficial, general in nature. But I felt like I needed to figure this out once and for all, for myself. And... Uh, I don't think I did. And so I'm here uh, in process this morning, uh, still thinking through what the Bible teaches about these um, truths about God's judgment. And hopefully, I I wanna, wanna, what I want to do is bring you along in my study here and, and um, take you to some very important verses that I think we all need to understand what what does that mean, and how does that apply to our lives? And, and if anything, hopefully you'll walk away today uh, with your appetites whetted, if you will, and, 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 and wanting to, to study it out for yourself and to get into God's Word. And if, if there was any um, result or, or, or fruit of the exposition of God's Word on a Sunday morning is that it gets God's people into His Word throughout the week. Amen. And so hopefully you don't just come here thinking, well, Ken will just tell me what I should believe, right? And I don't have to read my Bible. No, I'm not sure what Ken believes. He wasn't clear this morning. I got to figure out what I believe and what the Bible teaches, more importantly, about this subject. And so let's talk about the judgment of God as it relates to believers and then also as it relates to unbelievers. And so we need to begin by looking at what the Bible says about God's judgment for believers. In fact, the Bible says God's judgment starts with his own people. 
And so it seems like the natural place to begin. It's easy for us to just say, hey, let's talk about the judgment of God and let's talk about all those people out there who are going to be judged by God someday. All those unbelievers out there, those wicked, wretched people. That's typically where we want to go and we're, we're, we're okay with that. Well, the Bible says that judgment begins with those who believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And, and by the way, we're going to be looking at, at a number of passages, and I want to encourage you to actually go to these passages with me so you can see them with your own eyes. But look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the first question we should ask ourselves is, what does, it, what does it mean that judgment, God's judgment, begins with the household of God, begins with his own people? Well, Peter was referring to the trials and difficulties that the believers he was writing to were experiencing in their lives at the time. He was writing to encourage them and, 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 and challenge them and instruct them, these believers who were scattered all over Asia and they were being... Uh, uh, persecuted and uh, abused and slandered and mistreated. And so Peter wanted them to know that God was using all their suffering, all their persecution to judge them, or maybe a better word would be to discipline them, to purge sin from their lives and make them more like him. And so I think it would be safe to say you could insert the word discipline there for judgment, for it is time for discipline to begin with the household of God. Turn back to Hebrews, just a few pages to the left, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10, and this is, uh, I think, helpful for us to uh, just clarify that when we talk about believers being judged... Initially, we should maybe understand it more as believers being disciplined. Notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. I don't know about you dads or you parents, um, but uh, I've never disciplined the kids down the street. Why? Because they ain't my kids. A father only disciplines his own children. And likewise, the discipline of our Heavenly Father begins with His own household, with His own children, with the church. And so the, 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 this judgment within the household of God or this discipline within the, the church of God includes church discipline in which we as believers play a strategic role by gently and humbly 
judging others while at the same time carefully judging ourselves. Look at, uh, we're familiar with Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. We don't need to turn there. Uh, that's where uh, Jesus gave the instructions for church discipline and how believers were to interact with one another. If you see a brother in sin, you're supposed to go to him and confront him about that and, and hopefully win him over. And if he doesn't listen to you, you bring one or two other witnesses and do the same thing, reconfront the situation, and hopefully that will bring them to repentance. And, and, and if he still doesn't repent, then you bring it to the entire church and you tell the church and they all go out, go out in love, gang up on that person in love and, and, and confront them, again, for the purpose of winning them back or restoring them to a right relationship with the Lord and a right relationship with the church. But we see an, an example of church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and turn there with me, we see that uh, Paul was confronting the church in Corinth for not disciplining or judging um, a matter where uh, a man was in some sort of incestuous relationship with his father's wife, and, and everybody knew about it, but nobody was doing anything about it. And so Paul said, hey, you need to deal with this. And notice what he says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. I'm not talking about unbelievers here necessarily, but actually I wrote to you to not associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In other words, the person that's professing to be a Christian. That's who I was addressing. That's who I was telling you not to associate with. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But for those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, let God deal with the unbelievers, but you make sure you judge yourselves. You judge fellow Christians. You're there in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, this judgment of the church should begin with ourselves, with self-judgment, self-examination. Uh, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, in the context of his instruction on the Lord's Supper, taking communion, he said this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Notice the judgment language here. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so again, Paul makes the distinction here between the judgment that we receive um, which is not condemnation, right? And the judgment that the world receives, which is condemnation. And so we need to be judging ourselves. 
Like we learned last week, Matthew chapter 7. How can we take the speck out of our brother's eye when we have a, what? A log, a beam in our own eye. Deal first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not that the Lord doesn't want us to uh, confront other people's sin or sin in other people's lives, but only after we have dealt with the sin in our own life. And so that's what communion is. A communion is an opportunity for us to deal with sin in our lives, to, to examine ourselves, to judge ourselves, or to discipline ourselves. And that should happen every time we come together for the Lord's Supper. And so God's judgment of believers is happening here and now, during our lifetime. But it will also occur occur in the future. Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Here, Paul is talking about addressing the issue, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Rome, and the churches in Rome were uh, getting into arguments, passing judgment upon one another about gray areas, about matters of conscience. And so Paul says this in chapter 14, verse 10. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us, each one of us, will give an account of himself to God. This is the first reference to, uh, really the first of two references uh, that, that talk about the judgment seat of God. The other place where Paul mentions this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Look at there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul picks up the thought in Romans 14. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There it is again. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And again, Paul is talking in the context of believers. And this same phrase is used, the judgment seat of Christ. It was the judgment seat of God in, in, in Romans 14, the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and both of those phrases, the, the judgment seat, is a translation of the Greek word bima or bema. And this word is, is used in the Gospels and the book of Acts to describe this raised platform where a Roman magistrate or ruler sat to make decisions and pass sentence on convicted criminals. But when Paul used it in his letters, um, it's more in keeping with its original use among the Greeks as the the elevated platform where victorious athletes were given um, or were taken after the, the competition was over to be examined and awarded a prize by the appointed judge. In other words, the the, the Bema seed, in, in Paul's mind, as he's mentioning it here and using this analogy in Romans and in 2 Corinthians, it wasn't a place where losers were whipped or where they were sentenced to some kind of hard labor. You lost, now you have to do this. Here's the punishment. Here's your punishment because you lost. Listen, if, if the Bema seat judgment, as it's typically referred to, 
was a time of punishment for sin, that would be inconsistent with the finished work of Christ who paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Someone said it this way, quote, Scripture teaches that for the believer, God's justice has already been fully and forever satisfied at the cross in relation to the believer's sins. If God were to punish the believer judicially for his sins, for which Christ has already rendered payment, he would be requiring two payments for sin and would therefore be unjust. And we're learning in the book of Romans that God is a just judge. And so those of us who have repented of our sin and have trusted in God's provision for our sin through the person and work of his son Jesus will never be judged for our sins. Is that clear? Why? Because they've already been forgiven at the cross where Jesus was judged. Jesus was punished. Jesus was condemned by God in our place. And that's why Paul said in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ, will not, we will not be judged for our sins but rewarded for our works. It's a very important distinction. Believers will will not be judged for our sins. We will be rewarded for our works. That is the the quality, the acceptability, the sincerity, i.e. the motives of our service will be evaluated or inspected by God to determine whether or not it meets his standards and is worthy of a reward. We see this laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul likens himself to a builder and the church in Corinth as a, as a building. And, and someday his work was going to be inspected by the Lord of the church himself, Jesus Christ, and he would be rewarded accordingly or appropriately. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Again, he's, 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 he's warning them, hey, you need to be careful about your involvement in the work of the church and the building of the church. And by the way, we're all part of the work of the church. I might serve as the foreman, as, as the pastor, but... We're all in this construction crew together, and we're all building this church, particular church, local church, Lakeside Bible Church. He's saying, be careful how you build, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire... And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. That last expression is helpful because we know that Paul did not have hell in mind here. Sometimes whenever we hear the word fire, we're like, oh, he's talking about hell. No, he's not talking about hell here. 
He's talking about the, the fire of testing. It's just like all of our, we, we bring all of our, our works, all of our deeds before the Lord at the end of time and at the Bema Seat judgment and he takes them and he puts them on the conveyor belt and puts them through the fire, puts them through the furnace and, and just to see which ones pass the test. Um, whether they were gold, silver, precious stones, whether they were wood, hay, or straw, obviously those things will poof in, in the furnace, Right? And so we're talking about what was the motive with which we did the things? What was the quality? Was it shoddy work? Was it, was it, uh, or was it hard work? Was it, was it for God's glory or was it for your own glory? It's those kinds of things, I think, that distinguish between gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Well, was Christ the focus uh, when you taught that Sunday school class? Or, or were you the focus? Were you looking for the, the, the praise of men or were you looking for the pleasure of God? It's, it's those kind of things. What was going on in your heart? And, and notice here, he says, he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And, 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 and he'll suffer loss. If any man works is burned, he'll suffer loss. Okay, we're not talking about loss of your soul here. We're talking about loss of a reward. And so it's important that we clarify that. Now, I guess you could imagine yourself having recently built a new story house, a new two-story house. And you're on the second story and you smell smoke and, and you look downstairs and you see that the first floor is on fire. And so what do you do? You jump out the second story window to save your life. And you're out there on the street left to watch your brand new house burn to the ground. At that point, you obviously will have mixed emotions you're thankful that your life was spared, but you're sad that your house is destroyed. Now, this may be what it will be like for those who are saved, but have nothing to show for it. In other words, they squandered the, the opportunities that God gave them to live for Christ, but, but uh, they, they, they squandered those, and yet at the same time, they're still able to enjoy the, the blessings and the benefits of heaven. That may be a way to illustrate what Paul meant when he says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. The only thing I don't like about that illustration is I think it breaks down in that I can't fathom anyone in heaven, in, in heaven having mixed emotions. Granted, there are some negative aspects to the Bema Seat of or the Bema Seat judgment passages that I've read, those two passages in Romans 14 and in Second Corinthians 5. And they definitely depict some sort of, of, of sober reckoning or accounting of our lives. You can't get around that. But furthermore, there are several places in Scripture where we're exhorted to live our lives in such a way as not to be ashamed when we stand before the Lord. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 37, uh, Jesus very clearly said that. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And here it is. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory for his Father with 
the holy angels. I think what Jesus was referring to there, those who would be ashamed um, of, or that, that Christ would be ashamed of, are those that were ashamed to follow the demands of discipleship. They weren't willing to come after him or deny himself or take up his cross and follow him. They weren't willing to give up their life. They wanted to keep their life. In other words, they were ashamed to, to follow Christ in this world. And, and those are the ones that the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes. In other words, they're unbelievers. They, they were never truly saved. They weren't true disciples of Christ. But then what do you do with 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, a letter written clearly to believers, or at least to those who profess to be believers, that they might know for sure that they were saved. That's the overall context of 1 John. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and again, we have to keep that in mind, take that into context here. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, now little children, seems like he's addressing believers here, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And again, the question is, what would that look like for a believer to shrink away in shame when the Lord returned. Well, look at the next verse. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone else who practices righteousness is born of him. And he goes on to expand this whole idea of practicing righteousness over in chapter 3, verse 7. He addresses them again, little children, make sure no one deceives you that the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so the word, the optimum word there is practice. In other words, what is the consistent pattern of your life? And if it's not abiding in Christ, as he says in verse 28, abide in him, that should make us think back of John 15, right? The, the vine and the branches, right? That we need to abide in him. We need to stay connected with Christ. We need to stay faithful to him, right? It, it, that is simply evidence that we are truly saved. In other words, we're not saved because we abide in Christ. No, we abide in Christ because we're saved, and so, again, this shame, this shrinking away from him in shame, I think uh, could be and is most likely a reference to unbelievers. Because if, if we are true believers, we will we'll be abiding in Christ, not perfectly, obviously. It's not that we won't have sin in our lives or things that we're ashamed of or embarrassed by. But it seems like these references have more to do with unbelievers or maybe professing believers 
Believing unbelievers, how's that? Those who say they believe, but they're not truly saved. And when Christ returns, that will be revealed by the shame that they have because they've not truly abided in Christ. Now, having said that, that's just one little other rabbit trail I went down to think through. What is this shame? Is this, is this a true believer who experiences shame when the Lord returns? Or is this a false believer? It seems to me that it's a description of a false believer. But let's continue our, our line of thinking here. In that how, how could there be feelings of shame in a place where there's no sorrow? How are we to resolve the, the tension between the warnings in the Bible to avoid shame when we face the Lord and the promises in the Bible that there will be no sorrow in heaven? I mean, this is one of those tensions in the scriptures that that's a, at the end of the day, it's a mystery. And we're finite in understanding and it's really not precisely laid out for us in the scriptures and so it's just spoken of in generalities and so we have to accept that that we're not going to fully understand what's going on here. But the point is it's impossible to ignore the elements of remorse and regret and possibly even shame in the Bible's description of the Bema Seat, which is the judgment of believers. And so what are we to do with this remorse, this regret, that seems to be a possibility when we stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. Well, I think we can conclude that any sorrow that we may feel will be caused by the realization of what our unfaithfulness cost us in terms of the loss of rewards and ultimately a loss of the glory of the Lord. In other words, we wish we could have done more to, to, to honor and to glorify the Lord, but because of our unfaithfulness, our indifference, we, we lost opportunities, we missed opportunities to bring Him glory. But I think these sorrowful, regretful thoughts and feelings that we may experience at the Bema Seat will be momentary. They'll be short-lived in view of passages like Revelation 21.4, when he was describing the new heavens and the new earth, John said that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And then I love this, Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So at some point, maybe there's a, it's a timing thing, right? Because uh, you can debate the timing of the Bema Seat judgment as well as the great white throne judgment. And so if, if it is as I believe it is, as the scripture lays it out, uh, as best I can tell, is that uh, the Bema Seat will happen after the rapture and after all the believers in Christ are raptured. At some point between the rapture and Christ's second coming, we'll experience the Bema Seat judgment uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb will be ready for Christ's return as his bride will be prepared. And so during that time, maybe during the tribulation and things like that, that there might be some thoughts of regret, some feelings of remorse, some sorrow. But then after the millennium, 
after the thousand-year reign of Christ, it says he will, what, create a new heaven and a new earth. That will be the heaven that we know of, that we talk about in Scripture. And it says at that point, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. It could be that there's a differentiation in, in just the timing of it all. I came across an article that I found very helpful, and I just wanted to read a portion of, of it to you because it helped clarify my own thoughts, and hopefully it will do the same for you. This is what this one author said. Joy will indeed be the predominant emotion of life with the Lord. But I suspect that when our works are made manifest at the tribunal, some grief will be mixed with the joy, and we show no shame as we suffer loss. But we shall rejoice also as we realize that the rewards given will be another example of the grace of our Lord, for at best we are unprofitable servants. In other words, I don't even deserve to be here to begin with. And yet I'm here and I'm getting rewards, and this is amazing. And he says, this sorrow must be somewhat relative. Because even for the finest of Christians, there will be some things worthy of unceasing remorse in the light of God's unapproachable holiness. This would mean that the finest of Christians could be sorrowful throughout eternity. However, this is not the picture that the New Testament gives of heaven. The overwhelming emotion is joyfulness and gratefulness. Although there is undeniably some measure of remorse or regret, this is not the overriding emotion to be experienced throughout the eternal state. The emotional condition of the redeemed is that of complete and unending happiness. And then he gives this illustration. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not better, do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they're thankful that they have been graduated and they are grateful for what they did achieve. And then this is, I think, a key statement here. Again, maintaining one of these tensions in the scriptures. He said this, to overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. In other words, it doesn't matter. And so I think we have to conclude that the Bible undeniably teaches that the anticipation of Jesus' return should have a purifying or sanctifying effect on our lives and serve to motivate us to live faithful lives so we have no regrets, but only rewards. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I skipped over this section if you're still there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because he will see, we will see him just as he is. And here it is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So rewards, rewards, seems to be the main focus of the Bema Seat judgment, not regret, not remorse. And, and again, I think this is important for us to, to, to grapple with because if you're like me, you maybe grew up hearing preachers, well-intended preachers, misrepresent the Bema Seat of Christ. 
the judgment seat of Christ. And I remember many a camp meeting where some preacher was given a hellfire brimstone kind of message and, 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 and somehow this all got blurred in my mind and, and, and because the preacher was talking about this day, this, this day that was going to be this, 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 this where all of us were going to be standing together and all of our sins that we ever committed were going to be played out on a screen, like a replayed on a big video screen for all to see. And, and this was a, this ominous threat that we were to live with And it would scare us not to sin. Well, that got into my little junior high head, I guess. And uh, I've been trying to do away with it ever since. Because part of the Bema Seed judgment seems to be answering to the Lord for our sin. Again, not being punished, not being judged, but answering to the Lord for our sins. But again, the primary emphasis in the scriptures is we'll be accepting rewards from the Lord for our service to him. That's the emphasis. And so the emphasis that we should have as preachers and as Christians should be on the rewards, not the regret, not the remorse. In fact, I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Turn back there because this is a very important verse. And again, this comes in the context of the Bema Seat judgment or the explanation of the fiery uh, testing that we'll endure as believers, or at least our works will endure. First Corinthians chapter 3, he talked about that. And then in chapter 4, he talks about the importance of being faithful. Verse 2, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one is found trustworthy. And then look at verse 3. For to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. And he was being scrutinized by the Corinthians. He says, you know, I, I could care less what you think of me. You're examining me. You're judging me. I really don't care what you think, what your conclusions are. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Why? Verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted but the one who examines me is the Lord. Ultimately, I could judge myself, but guess what? My heart's deceitfully wicked and I can miss something. Therefore, he says, verse 5, and here it is, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. There's like, okay, that is a little scary to think about, right? There's that... Um, fearfulness of, oh, my, my motives and my thoughts will be examined, will be disclosed. But then notice the next phrase, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Again, the emphasis of the Bemacy judgment is not punishment, but praise. And so what are some of the things, practically, that we might be praised for or rewarded for at the Bema Seat. Let me give you a, a quick little list here. I think we'll be praised for or rewarded for how well we obeyed the Great Commission, how faithful we were to share the gospel, 
or how faithfully we shepherded God's sheep, particularly if, for those who are pastors and elders, or how accurately we taught God's word. James 3 says, let not many of you become teachers because you'll incur a what? A stricter judgment. Or I think we'll be praised or rewarded re regarding how vigorously we fought to mortify sin in our lives. Or how consistently we exercised our spiritual gifts and talents that God has entrusted to us. Or how lovingly we ministered to our fellow saints. Or how compassionately we served those less fortunate than us. The widows, the orphans. Or those that Jesus described as the least of these in Matthew 25. Or how well we stored our money. So that we were able to give generously and sacrificially to support the work of the Lord or how joyfully we endured persecution and insults and slander or how steadfastly we persevered under the trials that God ordained for our lives. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I love what Hebrews 6.10 says, for God is not unjust, that's the title of our sermon, The Just Judge, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name. In other words, the Lord's not going to forget that. You will be adequately, appropriately rewarded. And so the judgment day for believers, talking about the judgment day, right? Well, the judgment day for believers will be more like an award ceremony than a court trial. Some of you may have had that in your mind. This is going to be like a court trial. We're going to be scrutinized. And no, this is more like an award ceremony where Jesus will hand out crowns, as they're referred to, or rewards, or commendations, or honors, or privileges, or responsibilities and capacities to serve that we will enjoy for all eternity. Revelation, again, describes these as crowns. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown your reward. But again, by way of application, these crowns could take the form of rewards or commendations or honors or privileges or responsibilities or capacities to serve. It's not like we're just going to be sitting around for all eternity, you know, in a little white, you know, toga with a harp on a cloud. We're going to be serving in the new heaven and the new earth and We'll be given responsibilities and capacities to serve based on our faithfulness in our lifetime. And when I think about this whole idea of an award ceremony, maybe you're not as sinful as me, but at any award ceremony I've ever been to in, in my life, I just get into that competition and comparison and and, and, oh, that's great. Yeah, all right, that guy got that award, but I really wish I had gotten that award. I really wanted to be the MVP this year, but that guy was the MVP. Oh, yeah, okay, great. And so you, you wrestle with, right, envy and jealousy and resentment and dissatisfaction and discontentment, and at least that's what goes on sometimes in my heart and some of the award ceremonies I've been a part of over the years. But you know what? This is going to be 
This award ceremony will be when we are in a glorified state. And so there'll be no sin nature to produce envy or jealousy or resentment or feelings of dissatisfaction. And what's more, the focus will not be on ourselves, it will be on what? Christ. And we will ultimately cast our crowns, our rewards at the feet of Jesus and give him all the glory and all the honor and the praise. And there'll no longer be that conflict in our heart where we long for glory and honor and praise for ourselves. It's not going to be there anymore. And all we're going to care about is, is his honor and glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, talks about the 24 elders, which I think represents the church during the time of the tribulation in heaven, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him and who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. So for believers, the judgment day should not be a terrifying day that we dread, but a glorious day that we look forward to. That was Paul's perspective. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and maybe we'll end here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And this was Paul's final farewell, his last letter that he wrote to his, his uh, protege, Timothy. He was handing off the baton of ministry to him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In other words, Paul ended his life before he even made it to the Bema Seat without regret without shame, without remorse. He, he just lived his life in such a way that he had no regrets. I, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Now, what do I have to look forward to? In the future, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have been scared for him to return. Is that what it says? No, but also to all who have what? Loved his appearing. I can't wait for the Lord to return. And if that is not your experience as a believer, something's wrong in your life. Either it means you're not saved, you're not truly saved, or you know that there's areas in your life that are displeasing to the Lord. And it would be like a parent coming home, right, and catching you with your hand in the cookie jar. And so you just know if there is any fear or dread about the return of Christ, that should be a wake-up call for you to examine your life. And to find out, well, why, what is it? What is it about the way I'm living that makes me afraid to see the Lord? Because I don't think that should be the thought 
in the heart and mind of any true Christian. We should only and always look forward to the coming of Christ and standing before him and giving account of our lives. Well, that's what God's judgment will be like for believers. And just so you know, that's not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. He's talking about God's judgment of unbelievers, both unrighteous and self-righteous unbelievers. And so as we go through this text, and specifically verse 5, when it says, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, it's not talking about the Bema Seat judgment, that's talking about the great white throne judgment. And so we'll look at that next time and uh, hopefully be able to, um, again, keep clear in our minds, not be confused between the, the Bema Seat judgment and the Great White Throne judgment. We've got to keep those things separate in our minds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to look at your word and grapple with this whole concept of um, the Bema Seat for us as believers. And what is that going to look like? What's that going to feel like? And thankfully, Father, the overall emphasis of all these passages is, 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 is anticipation and joy and reward and praise. And that's only because you promised to never punish us for our sins if we've embraced Christ and the fact that you punished him already for our sins in our place. And so we have nothing to fear in regards to our, our sin that is paid for, it's covered. We are no longer under condemnation. We thank you, we praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that that would just motivate us to want to live holy lives radically committed to Christ, faithfully following Christ, that we could say with the Apostle Paul that we have um, fought the good fight. We finished the course. We, we kept the faith. May that be our epitaph someday so that we have nothing to fear when we come before you in heaven. And so, Lord... I pray we'd be good Bereans now and go home and, and take these things and um, go to work and continue to study your word to make sure we have an accurate understanding, a clear understanding of these very important truths. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.